morning, Thrive. What a happy way to start off a sermon. <coughs> you know, his, up until a certain point, his mom actually knitted the sweaters that he wore on the show. When I was doing research, I found that out, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, Mr. Rogers, man. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer for the new movie that's coming out. Uh, and, I, and I'm not going to lie, it's, it's what inspired this. I just got to looking into him, and, and you know, I knew he was a, a minister. Uh, he was actually a Presbyterian ordained minister. Um, how many grew up watching Mr. Rogers? At least seen an episode. How many have kids or grandkids that watch Daniel Tiger? So if you don't know, Daniel Tiger's a, it's a spin-off cartoon, um, and it's <laughs> it sounds really weird to explain it this way. All of the characters in the land of make-believe have grown up and had kids. And in the show's about their kids. Um, great songs and, and, and the same energy and, and moral teachings that, that Mr. Rogers had on his show is on Daniel Tiger. So Mr. Rogers just, I think he reaches out and, and he's touched every one of us, I think, uh, to some degree. Um, if, it, if we didn't grow up with him, we know someone who's, who's still kind of touched by that legacy that he's left. Um, like I said, he was a Presbyterian minister. He said that uh, in an interview, he said he, he tried to live his life by a few principles. Um, loving others like Christ did. Reaching out to people where they were in their lives. And then seeing every person as connected to and loved by God. He talked about the divine spark that exists in every one of us. Um, and how, how the way he treat, treated people was, was a reflection of that divine spark that he knew God loved them. He lived by the golden rule, right? And the very biblical principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. I think we all like to, to think that, in theory at least, that we live our lives that way. Um, and when we... When we think about it, you can really break down, you really break down this idea into to two questions. Who is my neighbor, right? And how do we treat our neighbors? So let's look at that, that first part. Who, of course, is my neighbor? I'm just going to say first and foremost, um, if you've never read The Art of Neighboring, uh, by Jay Patak and Dave Runyon. We did a study on this uh, when Thrive first started. We read this book. If you think you're a good neighbor, just read this book, and it'll explain to you how you are not a good neighbor. <laughs> um, the, I say that because uh, the, there's a little grid on the front, and it's actually it's integral to the book. It's one of the first things you do. You he has you draw out this grid, and the, the house in the middle, imagine in your, in your mind, the house in the middle is, is your house. It's where you live, right? And we have neighbors, generally in a neighborhood, we have neighbors all around us, right? There's people across the street, there's people that live behind us, people that live next door, people that live catty corner. Um, and if you did this, you were probably as surprised 
as I was to know that you don't really know who lives around you. Um, each one of these boxes has three sections. The, the A line was a, was a place for you to list out the names of all the people that live in that house. Um, and I'm going to be completely honest, I failed at line one. <laughs> um, we had, to be fair, had just moved into that neighborhood, but, um, excuses, excuses. Uh, yes, all of the people that live in that house on line A. Line B, right, you were supposed to put some sort of pertinent information. Uh, where do they work? Uh, were they a veteran? Uh, what kind of sports do their kids play? You know, something that, that if you had talked to them for 30 minutes at some point in time, you'd have learned. Where did they grow up? Did they go to college? Something like that. <clears throat> and line C, line C was in-depth information. Future plans, family dynamics, hopes, dreams, all that lofty stuff, religious, spiritual information, right? I'm going to tell you, I didn't fill in a single line C on any of the houses around me. And I'm not alone. Uh, the authors of this book actually found that the groups of people that they worked with, only 10% of the people could fill in all of line A. Only 10% of the people they worked with could actually name all of the people that lived around them. Only 3% of the people could actually come up with some piece of pertinent information about those people. And less than 1% of the people that they worked with could fill in line C for all of their neighbors. And the thing is, it sounds shocking, but if you think about it in your own head, I think it's really difficult to do that for all your neighbors. So when it comes to being a neighbor, at least right like in the sociological sense, the, the sense that we all think of, those people that live right around you in your neighborhood, sometimes we're not really good at that. At least that's, right, that's what the statistics show. In Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, the whole world was his neighbor. And let me explain that. If, if you watch the show, sometimes he would say, um, you know, we're going to go, well, there's a really famous episode where he goes and sees how they make orange crayons. And, uh, and that crayon factory is in, like in a completely different state, right? But in the show, he steps out of his door and like walks down the street and they're at the crayon factory. <laughs> um, it's a metaphor. The whole world was literally right outside his door. Everyone that lived in his town where they were ethnically and racially diverse, there were people that had all sorts of jobs, right? It was, a, it was a cross section of America right there in his neighborhood. The whole world was there in his neighborhood. You just heard him sing, I'm not gonna sing it, but um, <coughs> the lyrics to the song are, I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Every day, he implored the entire world through television to be his neighbor. Like, he sang those lyrics to the entire world, right? I want to live next door to you. I want to get to know you. 
Among that cast of characters uh, was a man named uh, Francois Clemens. Um, and if you've watched the show, you might know him as, as singing Police Officer Clemens. Uh, Police Officer Clemens joined the show in 1968. Uh, Fred was at a church service and heard Francois singing. Um, if you have the chance uh, when you go home to look up Francois Clemens and listen, he's got a beautiful voice. Um, Fred was completely enamored uh, with Francois Clemens' voice and said, hey, would you mind coming and being on the show? Um, I've got a spot for you, and I'd love for you to come and sing on the show. For 1968, this was pretty controversial. Um, Francois Clemens was actually the very first black person to have a recurring role on a children's show in the history of the United States. Francois Clemens was also gay. And Fred knew this. Um, he was closeted at the time, as many people were. But because Fred believed in meeting people where they were, he brought Francois onto the show and said, I want you to sing. I want you to sing these songs for us, and I want you to be a part of this. I wasn't alive then. <laughs> but let me take everyone back and really look at what was going on at the time. The Voting Rights Amendment had actually just been passed three years before Francois Clemens joined the show. We were at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, and between the years 1960 and 1968, when he joined the show, there were over 100 race riots in the United States. Suffice it to say that Officer Clemens was not what some people in this country would have wanted as a neighbor. But Fred Rogers brought him into the neighborhood and he gave him a prominent position. In 1969, this scene occurred. And just a couple of years earlier, so did that scene. On the left is Fred Rogers and Francois Clemens soaking their feet. Francois Clemens was a, supposed to be a beat cop on the show, and he'd been walking around and his feet hurt. Um, so on a hot summer day, Fred ran a kiddie pool and they sat together and soaked their feet. On the right is the manager of the Monson Motor Lodge in St. Augustine, Florida in 1984. The people in that pool are actually participating in what they called a swim-in. Uh, the pools were segregated at the time, they were whites only. Um, and several white and black protesters jumped into the pool together. And what he's doing is attempting to scare them out of the pool by pouring muriatic acid into the pool. But at a time when stuff like that was happening, Fred Rogers was sharing a kiddie pool with a black man. In Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, everyone was a neighbor. But let's be honest, right? Mr. Rogers isn't Jesus. We can't, we can't replace the gospel with good intentions, right? So what we always have to do is we always have to, to line things up, use the, the Bible, right, as our basis. So let's look at that. One of the first examples we see of, of neighborly advice is Leviticus 19.18. 
Um, and if you want to turn there, remember that Leviticus is a, a book of instructions um, given to the tribe of Levi on how to stay holy, on how to stay clean. Um, general advice for Israel, but specifically for the tribe of Levi. 19.18 says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not an expert on Torah or Judaism, um, but the scholarship that I've read suggests that this specific verse is actually talking about family. Um, if you think about it at the time, it, it makes sense. Israel was nomadic and tribal, right? A lot of these are, are practical advice. What, it, what Leviticus is saying here is, look, the people that are around you, your neighbors, give them the benefit of the doubt. A, they're most likely family, right? And B, you got to be around them, okay? Because this is how we're living right now. So the brunt of love your neighbor as yourself, it's actually saying love your family. Love those people that you're related to around you as yourself. And I think, I think that's how many people view this directive, Sometimes, sometimes we view this passage and we view this concept as, as long as I get along, right, with the people that are around me, I'm okay, right? I make peace with those people that are around me, and, and we're good. I don't fight with my actual neighbors. You know, I don't, you know, I don't get into quarrels. I don't argue. I don't let my dog go on their lawn. I don't, you know, whatever. I get along with my neighbors. But here's the thing. The people that you live by and the people that you associate with most oftentimes are very much like you. They are oftentimes the same race, same socioeconomic status. Some of them even have the same job. The neighborhood I grew up in was literally built for American Airlines mechanics. So literally, like, everyone would, like, leave at the same time in the morning. Like, even when I grew up there, um, cars would just mass exodus, because that, that's what it was built for. Was they, were all, they were all the same. They all did the same thing. It's not hard to get along with people who are just like you. Now, you may have di differences, and, and you may quarrel with them, but when it comes to actually getting along with people, if they're just like you, it's not that difficult. In the New Testament, we see Jesus clarify this concept a little bit. Luke 10, 25 through 37, and I've actually, I've personally preached on this several times, is, is the best example, and, and you know it is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, an expert in the law asked Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says this, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> and much like we do, I, 
I'll just say me, much like I do, when God tells me something, I like to play this game where I'm like, well, can you clarify that a little bit? <coughs> Excuse me. Especially if it's a difficult thing, you know? I don't, you said do this. You said give this money to somebody. You said go to seminary. You said, can you clarify that for me? So Jesus says, sure, I'll clarify that. And he gives the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you know the parable, it's this, that a man was walking along a dangerous highway and he was robbed and he was beaten up and he was left for dead. And a priest came by and was too busy and walked past him. And a Levite was too busy, walked by and left him for dead. And a Samaritan walked by and actually nursed his wounds, took him into town, paid for him to stay at an inn, and actually, and this is like one of my favorite parts, said, hey, I'm going to be back in a few weeks. Um, if he racks up a bill, don't worry about it, I'll pay that too. So Jesus tells this story, and then he looks at the, at the, the, the lawyer, the, the expert in the law, and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Our neighbors are anyone we come into contact with. See, the Samaritan and the man on the road were not related. Um, and we know that because of the history of the Samaritan people and the nation of Israel. We know they weren't related. Jesus isn't, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus isn't replacing the law. He's expanding the law. So a lot of times Jesus will, will, will give a commandment and he'll say, you've heard it said this, now this. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's He's quoting Leviticus to them to begin with, right? He's quoting Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbors yourself. They know that. But the context they know it in is family. And then he tells this story where someone completely unrelated comes up to him on the road and says, I'll take care of you. Jesus isn't replacing Leviticus 19.18. He's expanding the definition of what it means to be a neighbor, Our neighbors are the people we come into contact with every day. And in short, it's everyone around us. Now, <clears throat> to clarify, should you be expected to know everything about everyone you come into contact with? Yes. I'm just kidding. No. <clears throat> but should we be expected to treat everyone like we have an interest in them? Should we, be treated, should we treat people like we might run into them again. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't run out your door and flip your neighbor off or say something awful because you know when you come back home from work, he's going to be like, the dude lives like right there, right? Why would you do it in traffic? <laughs> right? We treat people that we expect to see multiple times, we treat them different right, than we do rando strangers out on the street. That's wrong, right? 
we should treat everyone like, like when we come home, they're going to be getting out of their car right next to us. Like we're going to see them again. I think Jesus is imploring us to take an interest. Basically to care about them like they're our neighbor. I think it's, I think it's what Mr. Rogers was portraying in his view of a neighborhood. And I think it's definitely what Jesus had in mind. So the other major question is then, how should we treat our neighbor? So if everyone's our neighbor then, okay, Jesus expands that definition. Everyone you come into contact with is your neighbor. What does it mean to love someone like you would love yourself? Well, let's look at the Good Samaritan again. So I'm not going to, again, not going to recap the whole shebang between Samaritans and Israel. Just suffice it to say, the relationship between those two groups of people was awful. It involved politics and religion and, and, and ethnic clashes. It was awful. The relationship was, was just not good. Um, there were, think of, it, think of it in the terms of like, what's gone on in the, in the Middle East between Palestine and Israel, right? Absolute generations of people that were brought up with assumptions about the other side, with barriers put in place between the two. And it was definitely enough assumption to keep people from being nice to each other, and definitely, definitely enough to keep them from going out of their way to help someone. But how did the Samaritan treat the traveler? like he knew him, like a neighbor. Now, in Mr. Rogers' world, we see this scene, again, contextually, 1968, well, actually, this was in 1969, a year after he joined the show. 1969, height of the civil rights movement. It, I mean, it, the scene in, in and of itself is controversial. We talked about what happened with people attempting to mix races in swimming pools, and here he is sharing a swimming pool with a black guy on national TV. This is, this is an intimate moment, right? Um, they've taken their shoes off. Their, it looks like their knees are actually touching. You know, they're like sitting right next to each other. Don't miss this, though, church. What is he doing? He's washing his feet. Come on. Fred was a trained minister in the Christian tradition. Y'all, this is not an accident. Like, <laughs> look at the imagery towel over the shoulder. Fred looks like a servant of Christ right there. Foot washing is an ordinance of our faith tradition. It's also one of the most humble acts. If you've ever been a part of that ceremony, humility is the, is the only thing that, that you can think of. Additionally, and if you go home and, and you look up this scene, 
This, this scene happened, I know, at least twice. Once in 1969, and then once in the 80s before Officer Clements left the show. And both times, he sings a song entitled, There Are Many Ways to Say, I Love You. And again, even just for the artistry, Francois Clements has a beautiful voice. Go look it up. But Mr. Rogers was telling a national television audience that he loved this person that many at the time may have even seen as an enemy. He was willing to humbly sit next to him and wash his feet right along with him. Mr. Rogers loved his neighbor without condition. I think it's what I think it's what Jesus expects of us. I really do. <clears throat> I really think it's it's what Mr. Rogers was trying to portray. Listen, a few weeks ago, uh, David texted the staff at the church. Um, we stay in touch to talk about staff meetings and stuff. Um, but he texted us all, and he said that a few weeks ago was the, the fourth anniversary of the transition from South Park Church to Thrive. That's when South Park actually finally shut down. So it was, in a sense, the four-year anniversary of the start of Thrive. Now, if you know about the history of the church, there was, some, there was a diaspora of sense of scattering into the world of uh, people from South Park. They were uh, going to different churches. Um, and even when Thrive started, we were only meeting, like, I think, like, once a month. Um, four years ago was actually also a really rough time for me, personally, and for my family. I was finishing seminary at the time. Uh, we lived in a really tiny, tiny apartment. Um, Bree and I actually were sleeping in what was effectively a living room. Um, things you do for grad school. Uh, tiny little apartment, no central heat and air. Um, it actually had little like gas stoves that you had to turn on in the winter. Um, and she was holding it all together. I, I have to admit, I was working, I was going to seminary. Um, we had just had uh, Jude, which is our third, um, in a tiny apartment. And I'm telling you, like, she was working hard, I was working hard, we were right, I mean, the end of that summer, we were, we were at capacity, I have to tell you. I was working on a final project uh, for seminary, and I was staying in contact at a professor, and I had a, a pastoral uh, mentor um, who I'd met, and I w I'd met him several months before. The night of August 14th, right at the end of summer, um, we woke up to smoke. Some of you have heard this, this story a couple of times. Uh, we woke up to smoke and the smell of burning rubber, and someone had set our cars on fire. Um, say cars plural, the both of them. Um, still don't, to this day, know uh, what happened there. Uh, but here I was, working full-time, trying to finish my final project for seminary. Bree's holding it all together, and our only mode of transportation, literally an empty hull, just sitting in the parking lot. I stayed up all night that night, and the next morning I made four calls. I called my parents, 
to let him know what was going on. I called my boss at work and told her that it would be a couple of days before I would be at work. I called my professor to let him know that my project was going to be late. <laughs> and I called my mentor to let him know, A, could he pray for us, and B, that we had a weekly meeting set up as part of this class, and that I was going to miss that because I didn't have a car. Um, and over the next couple of days, you know, we borrowed some cars and some modes of transportation. And uh, my mentor called me up, and he wanted to know if we could meet. He just wanted to make sure I was on track for our final project. Um, and he said he had something for me. And he said, let's just meet. Let's just meet in the, it was the parking lot of the Panera on Cherry Street downtown. Um, so we talked for a bit, and he assured me, you know, I assured him I was on on pace, and he assured me everything was going to be fine. Um, and he handed me a grocery bag. And in the grocery bag were uh, Tupperware with salads and soups and um, some gift cards. At the time, one of our kids was on a specialized diet, and everything was like gluten-free and taste-free and everything. <laughs> and it was just really expensive to feed him. And I had discussed that with my mentor, and um, he, said that, he said that even though his church had recently closed, he said that he'd talked to some of the people and they wanted to help us out. And so they got together, and they got these soups and these salads and these quick meals together, and they came together and they bought us these gift cards to help out with the grocery bill. And he said they just wanted to help. His church was this church, right here. So, David was my mentor throughout my last class in seminary. And even though South Park had closed, when he talked to some of the people that had come from South Park, they felt for us. And they got together and they made us food and they gave us gift cards. The remnants of South Park, what would become Thrive, loved my family like they knew me. I was a, I was a figurative travel traveler, like on the road, right? Kind of beaten up by life, kind of broken by life. And there was South Park Thrive, there to nurse my wounds, to pay a bill for me, some random family that nobody knew. Look, I'm not saying in the end that I joined Thrive or that I came to work here because the salad was so good. <laughs> it was great. It was really good. But we were drawn to a community of people that treated people that they didn't know like they were neighbors. In my family's hour of need, this church picked us up and loved us. I think it's that same warm, welcoming feeling that Mr. Rogers tried to portray in his show, right? Anyone who turned it on felt loved and accepted and listened to. It's like he cared. Everyone we meet is a neighbor.
and we're, try, we're to try and love them without condition. It's hard to say unconditional love, right? I, we're not capable of that. I'm not. I know you're not. We're, we just can't. We're, we're human. There's always conditions on the things we do. But with as few conditions as possible, we're to love those people around us with the same love that Mr. Rogers had and that Jesus had 